So good evening, Nick. Thanks for joining us on Owen the Town. It's a it's a Christmas special, and we thought we'd pull a few crackers and uh, see what comes out question wise. You okay with that? Yeah. Hello, yeah. Dave. Hi. So um, thanks for taking the time out. Shall we just pull the first one and see what it says? Can you tell us in the beginning how did you end up at Kenilworth Road? Well, I mean, I was born and grew up in Berkhamsted, which is about twelve or thirteen miles away. And uh, my father's a big Luton fan since he moved into the area around about wartime, the end of the war. Yeah. And um, he was always going. And I started getting an interest in the, the mid to late fifties. And um, in the end, you know, he, he took me to my first game in uh, September nineteen fifty eight against Leeds United. We drew one all. And I was, if I wasn't hooked before, I certainly was afterwards, just walking to the ground. What a marvellous moment as a little boy walking into a professional football ground for the first time and the grass was so green and goals with nets on and everything. And there was just a hum and an atmosphere, as we all know and love at football grounds. And it was just absolutely sensational. And I was hooked from that day till this. And that's, what, 63 years ago now. Wow, 63. I, I, my first, my first um, journey into the Kenilworth Road was 1970. And I remember going into the Oak Road and being passed to the front. And I thought that was a myth, but I literally got passed to the front and I sat on the <laughs> rails. Um, yeah. And you're right, the smells, the sounds, the colours, yeah. they're amazing. Yeah. Um, and I always, I always remember the smell of cigars. I don't know if that's true, that's just in my head, but I felt that it smelled of cigars and pipe smoking and things like that. Uh, but yeah, it, it I, was, certainly felt the smell, I certainly felt the smell of cigarettes generally and... Yeah. Um, you know, menthol-type sweets and stuff, people trying to keep warm. <laughs> well, do you know, the thing the, the thing when, when you said you lived in Berkhamsted, I thought I'd look up the distance from Berkhamsted to Luton, and there's a team closer. How, how come? Uh, marginal. Okay. And everyone in my town supported one or the other, but a lot of my friends supported Luton. A lot of them supported Watford as well. But, yeah. um, but if you go through the, you know, the country lanes, yeah. which we did from Berkhamsted, it was only about 12 or 13, and Watford was about the same. Really? Oh, I thought it was a little bit further, but, you know, I'm glad you chose Luton Town and not Watford, obviously. Oh, absolutely. Um, we, all re- we always remember our first games, don't we? We always remember those mm. games. Do you remember your second one? Just out of interest, because I don't. Uh, I don't oh, remember God. mine. I remember the first. Yeah, no, I'm not sure I do, really, because yeah. I didn't go that often, because I was only little and I lived 12 or 13 miles away. You know, I had yeah. to rely on my father being able to take me, so he couldn't take me to every game because uh, he worked on Saturdays. Right. Uh, so I couldn't always go to every game. But it's that one really stands out. I can remember it so much. But, I mean, from then on, it built up, it built up, and it really took off when I was older and could get myself to games, you know. So when I was in the late teens or, you know, my friends had cars or I could get hold of my father's car or something like that, that's when it really took off. And I was going to away games as well. I was about to ask that because I've seen you at away games uh, when mm-hmm. I've been at away games. Um so when you were younger, you was you was all over the place watching them. When you got the chance to do it, yeah, yeah. But if they were too far away, I used to go up to London and watch um, uh, West Ham particularly. I, I really enjoyed going to West Ham in the days of Bobby Moore and Jeff Hurst and so on, who you know I later got to know really well. I worked with them and and so on. And with hindsight, it's just unbelievable because at the time they were just sort of monumental heroes, not that much older than me really. But um, it's a real privilege in later years to have got to know these people and to have got to know some of the Luton legends that I saw in my first ever game. I mean, that first ever game in goal was Ron Bainham. I think he might be the only survivor now from the first game I ever saw. Uh, And I met him in the Eric Morecambe Lounge about two years ago. And I was just like a schoolboy all over again because, you know, your first heroes when you're such an impressionable little lad are so special. And to meet Ron Bainham was just absolutely 
jaw-dropping for me. Wow, because again, if I think back to some of the players I was lucky enough to see, and you know, this podcast is listened to by all ages, and some of them won't know some of these names, uh, and hopefully mm. they'll go look them up. But um, I remember a, a little to do with John Aston and George Best. When George Best and was it Rodney Marsh playing for Fulham, and they came to the Kenilworth Road, and I just re- I just recall John Aston standing there, and George Best had the ball in front of him. And Bestie feigned to go to the left, but didn't move. John Aston tried to go left, but didn't touch the ball. And then he feigned to the right, and John Aston went to the right, but didn't touch the ball. So George Best did a, a complete 360, and John Aston still didn't touch the ball. You know, George Best was a legend, wasn't he? Oh, God. For me, he's the best player I've ever seen. And I've been lucky enough to see Pele live, uh, Maradona live, Johan Cruyff live, commentated on some of them. Um, commentated on Maradona in the World Cup in 1982 for ITV. Wow. Um, and brilliant as those players are, and they are, and it's a personal thing. But because I saw George Best more, um, I just think he was the most wonderful footballer. And what would he be like today? Hey, um, yeah, well, you, you wouldn't be able to afford to buy him, would we? No, but I think we might struggle. We would sell the airport, perhaps. But, um, you know, bearing in mind that the pitches are like carpets and people can't tackle from behind. And the amount of times he got clattered and had to play on a ploughed field, um, he would have been sensational, unstoppable today. Um, But I absolutely loved him as a guy. I got to know him really quite well. And I did go on uh, a bender with him once or twice. Oh, really? mm, um, Could you keep up? Oh, no, not remotely. I've been on benders with Ian Botham as well, and I certainly couldn't keep up or afford to keep up with him. <laughs> Gosh. But, um, but George Best was just such a lovely, unassuming guy. And I really sort of, I used to say to him, I really can't forgive you, George, for depriving me of another 10 years of you on the football field because he packed in when he was about 28. Um, really? But uh, he, he was just a magnificent footballer. And he's only very slight and not very tall. And how he had the guts really to be you know face down some of those mighty brutal defenders whose sole job was to stop him and if it hurt it was going to hurt you know yeah well and and also uh best he came to play the dunce ball under barry fry um yes. so he played that, and i remember them putting up the temporary stands and you know i remember uh, my auntie just lived right on top of creasy park and we just looked out the window to see george best all happening. He was oh, a, he's, he's an absolute legend absolute legend yeah, um, and I think that's. I think you know we create our own legends when we're younger, and you put people, mm. like you say uh, when we. I spoke to Mick Harford last week or the week before, and uh, he's a legend in my. You know, I lo- you know I loved him. He's a really great player, but uh, bestie, mm. one of the best, obviously one yeah. of the best. Um, what is this I heard about you not getting in the Nick Owen lounge, Mister Nick Owen? How can you not get in your own bar? You're trying to upset me now, aren't you? Yeah, just a little. <laughs> But if, if yeah, I tell you something was, else, it must be ten or fifteen years ago now. Okay. I was with um, I've got four kids, and I was with two or three of them. And before the game, we're going to the Nick Owen bar for a quick, uh, quick pint. And um, we got to the door, and there's a bit of a queue going on. And I was sort of hovering around. I spoke to the uh, the bouncer on the door, steward, should I say? And um, I sort of shaped to go in. He said, "Sorry, mate, you can't go in there." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Packed out, can't go in there." And I said, oh, "Fair enough." So off I went with my kids, and that was the end of it. Didn't give it another thought. Uh, and the bloke behind him said, um, do you know who that was? And the bloke said, no, I haven't a clue. And he said, well, his name's in bleeding great block capitals above your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and it ended up in the Sun newspaper. And even a columnist said something like, and Nick Owen said, do you know who I am? 
I wouldn't dream of saying that ever. That was totally made up. I, it was just a funny story that Nick Owen couldn't get into the Nick Owen lounge. That's the end of it. It was health and safety, you know. You've got 500 people in a room. You can't let any more in if, it, if that is the limit. It's not that high, I don't know. But, uh, but it's, do you know what I mean? Health yeah. and safety, fair enough. If you're not there early, you don't get in. Uh, yeah. We yeah. all know that. I, so. the, guy, the guy who was standing around who told me um, what he said to the security man, uh, I met him at a away game a week later. That's wow. how I found out that that had happened. I, I think I, I think anybody sure. who said anything different about you, Nick, don't know you very well. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't believe that at all. Um, <laughs> can we just talk briefly about Kenilworth Road? I mean, we're all really, really excited about leaving uh, to get to Power Court, where we know we can't wait. That you know, the board and twenty twenty done a massively good job for that. Um, but how do you think you're going to feel when that last game comes along? And we have to. I leave? will feel very sad. I really will feel quite emotional about it because, as I said, for 63 years, I've been going to that ground. And every time I walk in, there's a real sort of, you know, uh, sort of, you know, energy that goes through me, electric shock almost. It just gives me such a thrill. I absolutely love that place. And I've stood and sat in every part of the ground in my time. And wherever I go, just the moment you walk in and suddenly you're looking down at the pitch and looking at the ground and, and thinking how much it means to you, nothing beats it. I'll never forget one time that I've been in Barcelona midweek commentating on the radio on Barcelona uh, against Aston Villa, I think, in the UEFA Cup or something. I've been seeing Johan Cruyff and people playing. And that was lovely and wonderful. But that Saturday, I think I walked in at Kenilworth Road to see us play someone like Hull City. And the thrill was far greater. And that will never change. You know, it, it is just such a special place to me. And I know it's antiquated and it's made of wood. And, you know, there's so many things wrong with it. And, you know, cues for lose can be awful. There's lots of things wrong with the old girl. But it, it is just such a special place. And the moment we say this is our final game and go there, I, I really will feel really quite moved i think excited as i am obviously about power court i've been waiting all my life for us to have a big stadium so to compete on, compete on a level footing with other clubs not just a big stadium that's not the real point it's the fact that the stadium can make money 14 days a fortnight instead of one day a fortnight and have yeah. conferences and so on there um and just have modern facilities and be proud of it but even so although people not can throw it i'm still proud of it because it's what you call a proper old football Around. Totally agree. I totally agree. And the thing that almost winds me up a bit is because the Oak Road was the home end I first went into. And I yeah, took me. I took walking up the steps across the gardens as just that's what it was. And mm. now you see away fans going, look at this ground, but you know what? We have a great atmosphere. We have a, we're close to the pitch. It's electric in there. When it's rocking, it's brilliant. And I love oh, the place. I think yeah. I will shed a tear when we leave. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I'll be close. I think I really will. Uh, and if you get it, you get it. If you don't understand it, you don't. It's it's one of those things, isn't it? And also, when I first went, the boxes didn't exist. And so that stand all the way along, the Bobber's stand, was actually yeah. packed with people as well, all standing in the early days. Um, we were all standing behind the Oak Road, all standing behind the Kenilworth Road, and standing in the enclosure in front of the, you know, the top end of the main stand. Um, and so the crowds could be, you know, really big. I, I never, I wasn't there for the FA Cup replay when we had 30,069 on March the 4th in 1959, because I was away at boarding school, you see, so I did miss quite a lot of games. Um, but I was in lots of 25s and so on, and that is really rocking, I tell you, at that place. 
Um, I think when they had the biggest crowd in that um, FA Cup game against Blackpool in 59, I think some of the schoolboys were actually sitting on the pitch or on the, you know, surrounds. And they said people had to be moved to take corners and things like that. Fantastic. Well, let's let's hope that we can create the same sort of atmosphere at our, our new stadium. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we will, because the important thing is being close to the pitch, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, so. Because when you see some of these big grounds, I know they're fantastic places like, say, the Etihad or um, West Ham's new place, the London Stadium. Um, they're quite a long way, aren't they, from the action? Yeah. And I, I would hate that for us. I really want us to be banked quite high and very close to the action, as close as a decent. You want to give the players a bit more of a space to be able to run up for corners and throw-ins and so on. But uh, I still want us to be as close as possible to the action without affecting the action. Shall we pull another cracker? Go on. Go on then. Let's see what this one says. Now, <laughs> since we've since we've got back to where we all feel that we belong, let's not dwell on the on the, the negative of all that because we know what happened. Um, the three wise men I'd like to have a real brief chat about is John Still, Nathan Jones and Mick Harford. What uh-huh. have those three done for our club? Uh, to get, well, John, yeah. John first, really. Yeah, well, John Still turned it all round, didn't he? Um, we were in a massive decline, having you know dropped through the divisions as we did from the Championship to League One to League Two and in the Conference. And it was a pretty sickening feeling when we went down. And, of course, we had five years, as you well know, in the Conference. And with hindsight, I can't believe that we had five years down there. But it was really tough. And in no time, you become a Conference club in many ways because the level of players isn't as good as we've obviously got now. And, and, and you just start you know, thinking that the big game next week is Fleetwood away or something like that. Your whole mentality changes uh, and there was a lot of anger amongst the, the fans about what had happened and disappointment and frustration when we didn't go straight back up so uh, there was quite a toxic atmosphere in some areas of the ground at some games and it was very very difficult time but John Still and the players he brought in like Ronnie Henry um, they really did change it around um, and he was such a positive guy, and he had these wonderful turns of phrase like, you can only control the controllables and so on. And um, he got us going again, didn't he? I mean, we had some close shaves, and poor old Mick Harford, you know, he was manager for a while and it didn't work out, um, and Gary Brabin and Richard Money and so on, uh, and Paul Buckle. Uh, and in the end, it was John Still, a wise old head, who knew all about non-league football and very experienced, and it turned it around, and in, in the end, that season we won the title it was one of the great seasons in my memory supporting Luton so it doesn't matter what league you're in if you're winning it is memorable Isn't if it? your team is playing entertaining football and scoring five goals away from home and stuff that is just unbeatable we scored six at Ebbsfleet I remember that on a really windy day um you know those sort of things are just fantastic and I, I just um I have such a tremendous regard for John Still and a love of John Still and everything he did about the club but one of the most important things he did was turn the mindset around and get everyone thinking positively, pointing in the same direction. I, I, I wrote down, actually, cohesion. He stabilised the club, really, and I think that's brilliant. Absolutely. Um, some of those non-league days, uh, going yeah. to the away stadiums and being outnumbering the home team by three to one as fans or four oh. to one as fans. It was a fabulous time. I mean, I'd, yeah. I'd, I'm not going to say I'd rather not have been there. Of course, I would rather not have been there, but... Actually, some of the experiences were pure football and pure fun. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I cherish the memory. I always say that, that although I never wanted to go into non-league, I really enjoyed it. I had some wonderful times going to some of these little clubs, like with it, Tamworth or Histon yeah. or Ebsleet, Hayes and Yedding, Alfreton, you know, where, uh, A, it's a, a new experience for us, so it's enjoyable going to new grounds. It was good to meet the people who ran those clubs because they were real grassroots football lovers lovers of their community, lovers of their football team. They did it for nothing other than a love of the club and the game. Uh, so meeting all those people and getting to know them. And as you say, you know, there'd be clubs where their average gate was about 300 and we would take 3,000 Luton fans along. They must have loved it. Yeah, and it was it was really good experience. All the time there was that anger and frustration about what had happened to us and the, you know, the desperation to get back to where we belonged. But um, the Week by week, game by game, some fabulous experiences. And, of course, we had, what, two finals, um, three finals in the end. Yeah. And uh, no, two finals and an actual title. Brilliant, some brilliant times. And some of those exhilarating wins when we scored, you know, five, six, seven and eight. Fantastic. Well, let's hope we don't go back there, but we can continue on with the high wins. Nathan yeah, came... Another, another little memory yeah. of, of non-league is discovering Andy Gray. Andre Gray, Andre Gray, yeah. Andre Gray. I mean, uh, we got him from uh, Hinkley, didn't we, for about 20 grand or something. Yeah. And what a player he turned out to be. What a great illustration that is of how players can be late developers. Um, you know, he, he sort of had been at Shrewsbury Town and uh, Wolves, and it hadn't worked out, so he'd had to go part-time and ended up, say, working on a building site or whatever it was, playing part-time at Hinkley. We played him in the FA Trophy. Gary Brabin thought, hmm, he's got something. Pace, particularly. And he came to us and turned into a million pound player. And he has done us wonders since then, you know, financially. He was on fire. He was on fire. Then yeah. the next person that helped us out after John, Nathan, Nathan comes along yeah. and he pushes us on again. And, you know, he, he pushes us yeah. to the to the next level. I mean, yeah, brave, um, brave decision by the club to appoint him as um, as manager because he wasn't a, a name that was known particularly. Um, you know, there, there were lots of names being touted about. I remember getting a phone call from Dean Saunders, of all people, and I was on the way back wow. from a game saying, you know, I'll be interested in that job. But lots of people were in touch. And that keeps happening now, even though I'm not directly involved, um, because obviously I've been lucky enough to meet loads of people over the years in the game. Um, but uh, Nathan Jones, I hadn't heard of when he was first being talked about. And he came along and a breath of fresh air and did the job quite brilliantly and has continued it. And I mean, there's a uh, a very uncomfortable blip in the middle of it when everyone absolutely hated the name Nathan Jones and it was a deeply upsetting time. And we were all absolutely shocked to the core when suddenly almost overnight he disappeared. It was a real blow. Uh, but what a wonderful thing that um, through various people, including Mick Harford, uh, everything was turned around and, you know, it was made up and he came back to the club at that crucial time when we were on the verge of dropping back out of the championship what were we, six points adrift yeah. or something with nine games to go? Just nine games to go. It was like a mini tournament. That's how it was described to me that, you know, if you want to try and win this mini tournament, who's the best person to, to manage it for us? Because we were manager less at the time. And they said, Nathan Jones is the man because he knows everyone and he knows the game and he knows this level. And the and team and the team knew Absolutely. him and the team loved him as well, I think. Yeah, um, but I think even the team, even some of the players probably found it a bit difficult after what had happened. I think, you know, people did feel betrayed and Nathan would accept that and he knows that. Uh, 
Um, but he's turned it around now. And, you know, there's time to forgive everyone for things that happen. Of course. And, you know, who can blame him in some ways? It's the timing. That was the thing that upset people. But the actual fact that he went, you know, for uh, a massive salary, dealing with a squad full of semi-Premier League players, a club that had ambitions to go straight back up with a huge ground, you know? Um, you can see the temptation, but people say it was the, the timing, right at the beginning of January, the beginning of the transfer window, you know, in a season when we were hoping to go straight up and we're in the top two or three. It was it was devastating, but it's gone now, water under the bridge. I've always liked him immensely as an individual. Uh, still in contact with him today, you know, via text and stuff like that. And I'm delighted he came back, delighted everyone was big enough to, you know, pour, uh, sort of sort out the troubled waters. Do you know, do you, know you, said, you said about that troubled waters, that when he left, and the podcast listeners would know this because I say it every time, Mick, Mick took over for that and the first game was Sunderland, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Up at, uh, yeah, yeah. I nearly said Roker Park, that shows my age, up at, <laughs> okay. at the Stadium of Light. Um, yeah. Just to let you know, Nick, and, and the podcasters won't forgive me if I don't say it, I flew to that game. Uh, wow. Via Dublin. Because oh. it, it was cheaper than the train. Are you serious? Yeah. So we went. So where to, did you land? Where did you land in we, Sunderland? We went. Uh, went to Newcastle, and then got wow. picked up and taken over. It was fun, absolute fun day. But that day, Mick really stepped up to the plate, and what a, what a legend mm. that man is. Yeah, yeah. Well, where do you start? Where do you end? Uh, I love him. I, I've known him uh, as a player since the early nineteen eighties became a, a good friend in the um, later 80s once he joined Luton Town. I knew him a bit when he was at Birmingham City, but I got to know him really well at Luton. He became a great friend, a lifelong friend, still in touch with him regularly. Um, you know, and, and uh, he's just such a lovely guy. He's such a warm, caring person, despite the image on the pitch that everyone knows from watching him play football, whether they were on his side or against him. Um, and you know, he was he was a terrific player, one of my all-time favourites. You know, there's a few of them who are all-time favourites. But he sort of transcends everything because of what's happened uh, off the pitch since he retired. You know, he's um, he's been involved in the club in so many ways as manager, assistant manager, chief scout and whatever. And stepping up like he did in that season when Nathan had gone and not only sort of stabilised us but took us to new heights and we won the title. Wow. I mean, uh, if you want a definition of football hero, uh, it has to be Mick Harper, doesn't he, in so many ways. And God bless him. I think everyone loves him and everyone is so much behind him in his battle with prostate cancer and willing him to come through it okay and be back to his normal self and working again for the club he loves so much. Absolutely. And uh, when I spoke to him, I asked him which end of the stadium, the new stadium, he'd like his uh, statue put and he, he, <laughs> I hope I hope Gary Sweet and the board think about that at some point. Can yeah. we have we got time to pull another crack, Nick? I think we have, and we just one more. Oh, yeah, I should. This one says TV Times. Now, I mm. I know you. I know you from TV AM. I know you from all of that stuff. I feel like I've known you for a long time. Although, <laughs> you know, because your face is on the telly, uh, you've been a, a commentator at World Cups. Olympic Games, is that right? You've, you've I presented the Olympic pre- Games. Presented and, uh, the Olympic yeah, Games. I used to cover ITV athletics, and then I was the anchorman for the Olympics in 1988, yeah. Quiz shows? Yeah. What's your highlight? That's um, a big question, isn't it? Okay. Can... It is, actually, because there's so many different things. I mean, I think um, 
it, it's the people I've been to. I mean, first of all, I say breakfast television because it was pioneering. I was on air on the very first day ever of ITV, breakfast TV. Wow. And that was as a sports presenter. And that's where I, what I went as. And uh, I was on air the very first morning, February the 1st, 1983. And I was surrounded by people like David Frost, Michael Parkinson, Angela Rippon, Anna Ford, all people I didn't till that moment know. And there I was presenting the sport. Amazingly, um, because the place struggled to get going, it's a commercial station, breakfast telly was going to take a long time to catch on. People didn't have televisions in their bedrooms in those days, in their kitchens or whatever. And so, you know, people didn't actually watch television in the morning. They didn't go into the living room because they raced off to work, having been in the kitchen to eat breakfast and go and so on. So it's going to take a long time to settle. Now, that's okay if you're the BBC, because, you know, you can carry on regardless with ITV, relying on audiences to make it worthwhile advertisers advertising. And so within no time, there was a real struggle with audiences and getting advertising. And they decided to throw everything up in the air and change it. And so instead of uh, David Frost, they asked me as the sports presenter to take over as the main anchorman within eight weeks, within eight weeks wow. this new station started. It was amazing when you think about it. And I presented briefly with Anna Ford and Angela Rippon, and then the management decided to change them, and they were sacked, and off they went. And the management called me and said, look, we want you to stay. We think it's working well, but uh, we would like any ideas you've got about who would you like to present with. And I said, Anne Diamond. They said, who's Anne Diamond? I said, well, she and I co-presented on ATV and Central TV in the Midlands. And we became great friends. And we are great friends. And we'd love to do our own national TV show. So six weeks later, she was sitting next to me. And uh, it was the start of our relationship on air, relationship on national telly for um, decades, really, here and there, you know, with um, TV AM, breakfast television. And then uh, a decade later, Good Morning with Anne and Nick, which is the mid-morning show we did together and we've done lots of other things as well together but uh, we were very close friends then we still are and it was a, a highlight of my life overall is my partnership with Anne in terms of television this is partnership with Anne and doing the pioneering stuff on breakfast telly I think but on top of that there is sport of course and you know I mean when I think back to the World Cup in 1990 which I anchored Italia 90 yeah. I just think back to when we played uh, West Germany in the semi-final of that competition and my panel that night was Gordon Banks, Jimmy Greaves, and Jeff Hurst. I mean, wow. wow. If you're a football fan, can you beat that? I mean, little things like that do rather stand out. Working with Princess Diana, as I did loads of times, and I got to know her quite well, that, that, that is a highlight for me. And just some of the mega people I've interviewed over the years, it's just been a real, real privilege. I feel very, very lucky to have done it. Pop stars that I worshipped in the 60s were on sitting on the sofa next to me. You know, one day in the commercial break, the producer said, you've got Paul McCartney on the phone. Suddenly... I'm talking to Paul, you know, about something that he's seen in the programme earlier, he wants to talk about it. So, At the end of it, I said, Paul, we've run out of time. We're going to have to let it be. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, so there are lots of different highlights, whether it's in sport or, I mean, even doing the quiz show, Sporting Triangles, you used to get 14 million people watching that. It's an awful lot of people. Um, and I wasn't very good at it. It was very early days for me in television and certainly doing show-busy sort of things as opposed to journalistic things. Um, but uh, still, you know, a, a great experience and just meeting so many heroes in uh, football, cricket, which I'm passionate about and, and pop music. Just brilliant, really brilliant. Seven, seven prime ministers I've been lucky enough to interview. So there are lots of highlights at different levels, you know. And you know what? You, people wondered why I was nervous about talking to you. When you, when you rattle all those people off, you think, wow, <laughs> you, you've spoken to a lot of people. Um, can you tell me how you might have upset Arnold Schwarzenegger? 
Yeah, I mean, I barely remember this, actually, but we interviewed him twice, Anne and I did. And one time, first time, um, when we were chatting away, uh, it appears that I must have uh, peed him off a bit by implying that he was just a sort of, you know, a bodybuilder and nothing more. I don't really remember saying things like that, but he was obviously upset. So this is ITV, TVAM. So there was a commercial break. I went off to the loo in the commercial break. And while I was off, Arnold Schwarzenegger said to Anne, I'm thinking of walking out because your co-presenter is so bloody rude. <laughs> um, Anne worked hard on him to persuade him to stay. Uh, so apparently I upset him by being a bit rude because it was a long time ago, you know, I don't know how big a film star he was then as opposed to a bodybuilder, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, to be fair, you wouldn't want to pick a fight with him, would you, given what he's like? No, I wasn't going to argue with him and say, see you outside. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just try something? Um, perhaps you might want to finish this sentence for me. If you can hear it, let me know. Do you know what it is? I think it might be. They won't sell, sell many ice creams going at that speed. And they won't sell many ice creams going at that speed. Mr. Eric Morecambe, could I just yeah. say, I, I, I don't want to sound rude to you, but he's probably our most famous fan. And, oh, God. <laughs> and there was a, a couple of things I just wanted to talk about cause, because um, he was always promoting Luton Town. If it was on the yeah. telly, national telly, he'd have the Luton sign-up. And the Eric Morecambe Lounge, you can see all that memorabilia from the TV. Yeah. Um, but for me also, you've done the same. You've done the same. You've always promoted Luton Town. I remember, and, 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 and unless I'm thinking of someone else, I remember there was one time he was on the TV sitting in an armchair. I don't know whether we were going to the semi-final in, in Goodison or whether we were going to the League Cup final. But you had so much Luton gear on, um, and sitting in that thing, I'm thinking it wasn't it wasn't something we normally see. You know, it, it wasn't your arsenal yeah. and, and the man news that everyone else around my area followed. You know, yeah, it was little Luton town. Mm. Um, do you recall sitting? I mean, I, I, I looked for a photo, I couldn't find it. Yeah, I mean, I've done it in a few different places, and I can't remember any details particularly, except one thing when I was uh, on the fantasy football league program with Frank Skinner, do you remember? In yes, yes. I, I used to be on that quite often and I always was wearing something Lutonish on there and they even gave me well, a great big sort of puffer jacket thing that, you know, coaches yeah. wore on the touchline, a Luton Town one, you know. Um, so I was very Lutonish there. Um, but in, in a, a lot of times when I was covering sport as such, I couldn't be showing my passion really. Um, so I couldn't be wearing Luton stuff. But if there was a chance, I would. And I always at TVAM always had a Luton mug on the on the desk and indeed uh, on the table in front of me and indeed doing good morning with Nan and Nick a decade later. But I couldn't have done that when I was actually covering sport. And I, I, I even remember there was one night when I was presenting Midweek Sports Special, which was my, my main thing with ITV Sport on a Wednesday night. Uh, the main game was Luton, Southampton, Southampton, Luton away in the League Cup. I think it was a replay and we beat them 2-0. And uh, I think Ricky Hill and Mick Harper scored the goals from memory. This is about 89 -ish. You're true, because I was there. Were you? Yeah. Oh, was it? Am I right? Yeah, anyway, you're totally right. I was in the studio and watching the game live as it happened, and then we put the edit highlights together. Now, the beginning of the programme, you know, whereas if Luton had lost, I might well have said, hello, good evening, welcome to Midweek Sports Special. The highlights tonight. Yeah. But this night I was saying, hi, good evening, welcome to Midweek Sports Special. Highlights tonight. 
you know, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, without saying the results. I didn't want to spoil it for people so they, you know, could watch it. Um, and I've got loads of letters of complaints saying from people saying, could tell by the way Nick Owen presented Midweek Sports Special last night that uh, Luton had won because he was so over the top. <laughs> well, overjoyed, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> overjoyed. Um, have, you, have you ever commentated on a game we've just presented? I've commentated on games, yeah. Can I, I commentated on the World Cup. On the World Cup game? Wow. ITP Sport, yeah. Uh, my first game was um, Hungary against El Salvador. Finished about 10-0 to Hungary. Goals never stopped raining in. Wow. And, you know, bearing in mind all the names are sort of, you know, fairly difficult names. I spent a lot of time at the training grounds getting to know them, but even so, it's quite tough. Uh, and another game I did at that time was, I think, Argentina against Belgium. And I saw this young lad for the first time I'd never seen before called Diego Maradona. Yeah. Wow. Well, he is sensational. Yeah, I was out there as an ITV reporter and commentator on a group, you know. I mean, the the, the, the big hitters commentating were people like Brian Moore and um, Martin Tyler and John Helm, those sort of guys, they were commentators. But I did a bit of commentating. This is very early in my TV career. I only started in TV in 78, and this was 1980, I suppose, or 82. Wow. Um so it's quite early days. But yeah, I did commentate on a few games. I commentated quite a lot of football matches uh, for local radio in the 70s, um, which was, you know, very enjoyable. It's not particularly me, but I, I did it. And um, my main thing is, uh, over the years, has been interviewing and presenting and so on. Well, with, with the, uh, the commentary, you mentioned Brian Moore, my favourite, and I, I've said this on the podcast many a times, uh, mm. my favourite, and Luton are ahead in the very last minute. It would take a monumental effort for Arsenal to get back now. Uh, that was fantastic. But there's also one other, if I may, just play you another piece of commentary that I found really entertaining. Let's see if we can get this up for you. Nil-nil at the moment uh, for Luton. And uh, Luton have got a free kick coming up now, which Bobby Thompson is just going to take. Yes, Anderson, it's there! It's there! <laughs> How about that? How about that? Anderson. <laughs> Wonderful. This is fantastic. Free kick. Hey, knockout. That's oh, fabulous, yeah. Huh? I, I wasn't at that game. I never realised that commentators got excited. He wasn't at that game, but wow. Yeah, I wasn't at that game, but um, uh, I, I remember hearing that. Uh, and Bobby Thompson, free kick. Peter Anderson, what a player. Met him not so long ago, which is a thrill as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, brilliant. I mean, uh, great memories and things like that. I mean, Eric Morecambe actually is my overall world hero uh, for so many reasons. Voted funniest man of the 20th century. I loved Morecambe and Wise stuff. I loved meeting him and interviewing him. I loved Eric, uh, Ernie as well. He's a lovely guy. Uh, and Gary Morecambe, of course, his son, and Steve Morecambe. They're, they're, they're both Luton fans and come occasionally <clears throat> uh, have lunch in the Eric Morecambe suite. Um, and, uh, and, and besides all that, with Eric, of course, he was a Luton fan. So what more could you ask? Absolutely love the guy. I've got a mini statue. You know that statue on the Morecambe seafront, the huge statue? Yes. Yeah. Well, the guy who did it, the sculptor actually made me a miniature version and sent it to me. It's on my mantelpiece at home. My ringtone on my phone is Bring Me Sunshine. So, you know, I love the man. And, and Gary Morecambe is a great, great friend. In touch with him all the time. He's speaking to me even this week, you know, so he's a great lad. And um, all things Morecambe, very special to me. And we're so lucky to have had his name associated with our football club. We yeah. really are. And again, he promoted us um, in the same way that you have, I suppose, uh, if I might say. Um, 
Do we have time for anything else, or are you, do you need to go? Go on, let's uh, let's have another question. Yeah, so so uh, let's pull a cracker again. All right. Joy to the world. Joy to the world. Listen, we've had some fabulous times when we've been Luton supporters. Um, the standout moments for me are probably the same standout moments that you have. Uh, if you could pick a couple. Would yeah. They, would... I mean, obviously, uh, the League Cup final in April 1988. I mean, just sensation. I was there with my mother and father, uh, two of my kids, two hadn't been born then, and those two hadn't been born then. And now fanatically supporters, but that's another story. Um, yeah, and with friends, had a row about 10 or 12 of us uh, at Wembley, and it was the most wonderful occasion. Stressful beyond belief, especially when, you know, we went 2-1 down and it could have been three with that penalty <clears throat> that Nigel Winterburn missed. Uh, and to win it with virtually the last kick of the game, I mean, it's just fantastic. The only major trope we've ever won. So that has to stand out above everything else. Um, but sort of smaller individual events stand out for me. For instance, in the late 60s, possibly 70, when we beat Mansfield 4-2 at Kenworth Road, when Graham French scored the greatest goal I've ever, ever, ever seen. It was a fantastic atmosphere that night. There must be approaching 20,000 in the ground. It was the old third division, and we were up near the top. Mansour were up near the top, and we had Bruce Rioch sent off in about second or third minute. It was horrendous. He was the absolute legend of the time, a wonderful player. He got sent off. Somehow we sort of kept in the game, but, you know, Mansour was starting to take over, and we were tiring. And then they got a guy sent off, and that really gave us a new... Um, sort of impetus and um, Graham French scored this wonder goal virtually took it from the edge of our penalty area at the Oak Road end ran the length of the ground in out in out man after man he beat till he finally rounded the keeper Kenworth Road end and smashed it in we won that game 4-2 having spent 88 minutes or something with only 10 men and that uh, that man who we lost was Bruce Real who was at the time the greatest player we had so that really stands out and then Another, a bit later, but not much later, uh, early 70s, I would say, was when we played Sheffield Wednesday away. Uh, we'd been promoted from the third division into the second division. Sheffield Wednesday had dropped down from the old first division to the second division, and we were going to play them away. And this was going to be a real test. You know, we were the new boys up, and they were the new boys down. So, you know, they were real big-time players. And, you know, I thought we were in for a bit of a thrashing. Went to Sheffield. I was working then on a newspaper. My first job after university, a newspaper in Yorkshire. Doncaster. So it was down the road, went to the game, and we had a young man called Malcolm McDonald playing who was starting to make a bit of a name for himself. And Don Givens, um, two terrific players for us. And we went and smashed Sheffield Wednesday 5 1 at Hillsborough. It was phenomenal. Malcolm McDonald got a hat trick. Don, who I was with only yesterday, had lunch with him only yesterday, Don Givens, wow. scored two. And it was a magnificent performance. And that really stands out for me. There's lots of things here and there that if you trigger my memory, I'll remember. But those two, two of the most exciting games I remember. Absolutely fantastic. Besides, obviously, the League Cup finals and semi-finals, like that Everton game, the semi-final 85, oh. when we played so blooming well and oh. somehow lost it. Devastating. Do you, do you that know? was the first game for one of my kids, actually. Anyway, so well, the, the, the semi-final that, that year was... Uh, Devastating for so many reasons, so many reasons, yeah. because we had a team that could win the FA Cup that year. Oh, um, yeah. Um, I was 21, um, standing in the whole end. Amazing. About amazing. 25,000, you know, on the whole end alone. Yeah, it was an amazing day. Um, just one more, if I may. 2009 JPT, Johnson Paint, 
the Johnson Paint yeah, Trophy. Yeah, yeah, cool. Oh, that's another standout moment. Yeah. Well, it stands <clears> out for me because the, when we scored the winner, the, yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I was at Wembley. Don't get me wrong. I was there. Yeah. But when you get home, you rewatch it, don't you? Because we won. Um, and the camera pans on you. In the oh. yeah, the camera pans on you. You've got your arms up and you've got your head up at the sky, and you are really cheering that goal in. So oh. That makes you a proper supporter. So can I ask you? Oh. Can I ask yeah. you one Come question, on. Nick? And, and and you can refuse to answer it if you want. But did you speak with uh, Brian Morwinnie that day? Uh, sort of. I didn't speak to him. He spoke to me. He said, "Well, first of all, he came up, and tapped me on the shoulder." And I turned around and he said, hi, I'm Brian Mawinney. Uh, hello, Nick. You know, congratulations on getting to the final and all that sort of thing. I said, thank you very much. I didn't say anything more. I just, you know, it was totally unfriendly, totally against the way I am. You know, so yeah. I was cold. And then he said, I've got to go out on the pitch in a minute to be introduced to the team. So I don't think I'll get a very good reception. I said, well, that's hardly surprising, isn't it? Is it? He didn't know, did he? He got a great reception from us, I can tell you. He got a great reception. He got exactly what he deserved. I, I don't want to end on the bad note. But, but I said, and it's not surprising of what, or, or after what you've done to our football club. Yeah. And then I walked away and I made a point of not sitting next to him at the game itself, which I could have done, you know, might have done. Hey, it might have been better if you'd done that, that big celebration next to him. But um, yeah, I know. But if, yeah, that, that stands out because of the context, doesn't it? You yeah. Know, it was an absolute moment, an oasis of joy and exhilaration at a time when we, we knew in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be relegated to the conference. Non-league football, unthinkable for a team that only sort of, you know, five, six years ago been in the championship and looking upwards towards the Premier League. We're in the playoff positions in October, weren't we, 2008 yeah. or 2006 or something? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that does stand out because it was such a great game of football and they all played so well and battled so hard. You know, a team of unknowns to most people watching a game like that. True. And against Scunthorpe, we were about to be elevated into the championship. We played so well that day. And that winning goal in extra time, Claude Mapka. Oh, the memories, absolutely wonderful. And the noise. The noise at the stadium was unbelievable. 42,000 Luton fans in there. Unbelievable. At a time of such crisis. You know, how many other clubs could have got that many when they were about to drop into the conference? It was just unbelievable. So, yeah, that is a standout moment. Loved it. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thanks for coming on our Christmas podcast. Um, hopefully you have a wonderful Christmas with your family and uh, see you at the ground and Boxing Day maybe. Yeah, and, and thanks to you and happy Christmas to you. It's been a delight talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.